Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 13. Uh, Revelation 13 for our time of study uh, in the Word uh, this morning. We're doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation, and as we continue in our study of this book, we come this morning to Revelation chapter uh, 13, verse 1, and my goal this morning is to cover uh, verses 1 through 18, and the title of the message this morning is The Rise and Reign of the Supervillains. The Rise and Reign of the Supervillains. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, the Apostle John, uh, who also wrote the book of Revelation, he speaks to his readers in the latter part of the very first century, and he says to them these words, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen And from this we know that it is the last hour. From that verse alone, and we could point to others, we learn that the first century Christians were expecting an Antichrist figure to arise on the stage of world history at some future point. The rise and the reign of this Antichrist is the major topic of our chapter Uh, today here in Revelation chapter 13, and we're going to see John refer to this man. He calls him Antichrist in 1 John 2.18. In our chapter today, he calls him the beast uh, 15 times, and then over 30 times through the rest of Revelation, he refers to this man as the beast. In Revelation chapter 11, that's where we encountered the beast very briefly for the first time, uh, we learned in that chapter about God's two witnesses that will arise in a future day. These men we saw will be indestructible for 1,260 days of ministry up until their ministry is ended. Then in Revelation 11 verse 7, we read these words, and when they, the two witnesses, have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Who is the beast that overcomes these two witnesses? Well, Revelation 13 answers that question and explains for us the rise of the beast and his partner, his sidekick in evil, Two men who will dominate the world scene at the end of the age. You could almost call Revelation 13 the story of Satan's two witnesses. Two men who will become the two most powerful people on the planet during the second half of the coming seven-year tribulation period. And these men will lead the world and have the world in the palm of their hand as they lead the world at Satan's bidding. We live in a day uh, today where any movie that Marvel Comics comes out with is almost guaranteed to be a blockbuster, right? But the story contained here in Revelation 13 far exceeds anything that you would ever see 
in any such movie. Now, to understand this chapter that we're going to be looking at, you need to understand that back in Revelation chapter 12, which we studied a couple weeks ago, John alerted us to the fact that he was seeing symbolic portrayals of reality. He tells us in Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, that he saw a great sign in heaven. And the sign he saw was a woman in labor who was clothed with the sun and had the moon under her feet. And in calling this woman a sign, John is wanting us to know that this is not a literal woman, but a symbol representing the nation of Israel that brought forth the Messiah. In Revelation 12, verse 3, John then says, And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, or crowns. The fact that John calls this dragon another sign tells us that this seven-headed dragon is a symbol that represents something else, and we are to take it as a symbol. And in Revelation 12, 9, John actually tells us what this dragon is, what it represents, and that is the devil. We see that in verse 9. Now, remind you of this and how symbolic chapter 12 is in various places because this symbolic language is going to continue in Revelation 13 uh, in various places of this chapter. And don't be freaked out by the symbolism of it. John is still seeing the vision that began in chapter 12, and what he sees includes vivid symbols that represent real things that John expects us to understand. Now, John has told us in Revelation 12 that the dragon or the devil will persecute Israel during the second half of the coming tribulation period, but how specifically will he do that? And in what environment will this persecution occur? Revelation 13 answers these questions. Evidently, this warfare will be raged through the leadership of two men in particular, the Antichrist and his false prophet. And the way we're going to break down our study of this chapter, as you'll note in the PDF document that has the worship lyrics on it, we'll observe six disclosures in John's vision of the rise and the reign of the Antichrist and his false prophets. Six disclosures in John's vision of the rise and the reign of the Antichrist and his false prophet. I'd love for us uh, just to take a moment to pray and ask God to give us hearts that are open to what he has for us through this passage this morning. Let's pray together. Lord God, we confess to you that we, uh, we need you, we need your word, and that this book of Revelation, though it describes things that will take place in the future, is written for our learning to shape the lives that we live today, that we might live with hope, that we might walk about in this world with an inner smile on our face because we know something. 
we know how this is going to end. And we know that Jesus wins in the end. And we know that you have much for us in this chapter. I'm overwhelmed by all that you have for us and feel pained that there are things that that we can't even get to for time. But we ask, Lord, that you would give us open hearts to receive all that you have for us from your word today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. The first disclosure that we observe here in this chapter is, number one, the Antichrist arises from the nations with power from Satan. The Antichrist arises from the nations with power from Satan. Observe what John says in verse 1. He says, And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten crowns, and on his heads were blasphemous names. Notice that this beast comes out of the sea. The sea throughout Scripture represents the forces of chaos and rebellion. So John's vision, it seems, is telling us that this Antichrist will come forth from the raging of the nations in their rebellion against God. In calling this Antichrist a beast, John is representing the Antichrist as a savage man who is a force to be reckoned with. Even later in this chapter, the world will also speak of this man as the beast, only they will mean it as a compliment. Even now, sometimes we speak of someone as a beast, right? And we mean it as a compliment. If I'm speaking of an athlete and how he performed in a game, I might say, that guy's a beast, And I may be complimenting him on how strong and aggressive he is on the field. Marshawn Lynch of the Seattle Seahawks was nicknamed Beast Mode. And he took that name as a compliment. If you Google Beast Mode, you'll learn that it refers to aggressive, animalistic persona that one might assume when in competition in order to overcome an opponent. And we're going to see that this is the very persona that the Antichrist will have, such that he's not only depicted by John as the beast, but even the people of earth at this time who love and adore him will also affectionately refer to him as the beast. As for what this beast looks like, In this vision, John sees him symbolically represented as having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten crowns, and on his heads were blasphemous names. In the last chapter, chapter 12, we saw the dragon, who is Satan, having seven heads and ten horns, and we see here that this beast matches that exactly. And these similarities tip us off to the fact that the beast, the Antichrist, will reflect the power of the dragon, the power of Satan, and will be very much like his father, the devil. 
That said, the difference, though, is that the dragon in chapter 12 had seven diadems on his seven heads, but this beast has ten diadems on his ten heads. Ten crowns on his ten heads. A fact which seems to show a symbiotic relationship between Satan and this beast. Whatever power the dragon has, he gives that power to the beast. And whatever power the beast has, he receives it from Satan and uses it in the service of Satan. The dragon and the beast are a diabolical team of overwhelming power. Horns in Scripture, throughout Scripture, represent power And the fact that this beast has ten horns with crowns on them shows the complete power that he will possess over the world of his day. And the fact that he is said to have seven heads represents a completeness or even a perfection of rule. The rulership that he will attain to during this time will have a completeness that no previous world ruler throughout human history, has ever attained to. John continues in verse 2 and says, And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. You might want to write down the reference Daniel 7, verses 3 through 7. In that passage, Daniel saw a vision hundreds of years prior to John's vision. And what Daniel saw was four beasts that were coming up out of the sea, which represented four world empires. The first beast that Daniel sees was like a lion. The second was like a bear. The third that Daniel saw was like a leopard. Notice those three animals there. These beasts in Daniel 7 represented world empires that followed one after the other. The lion-like beast represented the Babylonian empire. The beast that resembled a bear represented the Medo-Persian empire. And the beast that resembled a leopard represented the Grecian empire. But then Daniel As he keeps looking in this vision, he saw a fourth beast that he describes in Daniel 7-7 in this way. He describes him as, and I quote, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. Notice that. Daniel's fourth beast had ten horns. And the flow of history that Daniel is foreseeing here, this fourth beast was the Roman Empire which was in power in the Apostle John's day. This beast representing this Roman Empire was more dreadful than the three beasts preceding it, and it is said to have had how many horns? Ten horns. 
The fact that this fourth beast of Daniel 7-7 and the beast of Revelation 13 both have ten horns has caused some interpreters to believe that the empire of this future beast that John is foreseeing will represent a resurrection of the old Roman Empire. And this is actually, I think, likely true. I should also say that given the fact that the beast in Daniel represented kingdoms, John's beast here in Revelation 13 should be understood to also represent a kingdom, yet we're going to see that this beast represents a person as well. But here's what we should make note of. Whereas Daniel saw four beasts, which culminated in the fourth beast being the most ferocious of all, the apostle John is now seeing Daniel's fourth beast, who happens to have all of the fearsome characteristics of the preceding three beasts of Daniel's vision in Daniel 7. The Antichrist and his empire will have the power of a lion, the vicious strength and voracious appetite of a bear, and the speed of a leopard. And he will also have all of the fearsome qualities of Daniel's fourth beast. This beast of Revelation 13 is a terrible force that is being unleashed upon the world. Part of what makes this beast here in Revelation 13 so dreadful, as John says it in verse 2, is that the dragon, who is Satan, is the one who gave his power and his throne and great authority. Satan will be the one who gives the beast his authority in this day. In fact, this beast and his empire will represent Satan's greatest triumph on the world stage here at this very culmination of of human history. Remember, if you'll recall from chapter 12, Satan has just lost a war in heaven with Michael and his angels, and Satan has been thrown out of heaven once and for all. Satan is in a rage right now, and he knows that his time is short And the full fury of his evil will be expressed through this man, whom John calls the beast. As for how this beast attains to such power over the world, we can imagine some of the reasons. For one, as we have already seen in the book of Revelation, the world will be in great turmoil during this time. And no doubt will be looking for a leader who can unite them and solve their problems But there will be other reasons, too. And this leads us to the second disclosure in John's vision of the rise of the Antichrist and his false prophet. Number two, the world will be inspired to worship the Antichrist because of his victory over death. The world will be inspired to worship the Antichrist because of his victory over death. Observe what John says in verse 3. He says, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been fatally wounded, and his fatal wound was healed. Now, to understand the meaning of this statement, we should 
probably do a couple things. First of all, we should realize that John's statement here in verse 3 literally reads this way. I saw one of his heads as if slain unto death. I saw one of his heads as if slain unto death. And when you hear that expression, as if slain, you should be reminded of Revelation 5, 6, right? Where John sees Jesus, whom he describes as a lamb standing as if slain, using that same expression. So let me ask you, was Jesus, the Lamb of God, actually slain? Yes. So we would infer that one of the heads of this beast has actually been slain. And we have this inference confirmed later in Revelation 13, 14. Just go, go ahead a little bit in this chapter in verse 14 where we see the, birth, the, the beast being referred to as, and I quote, the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And we should pay very close attention to the language here in verse 14. In this verse, we are not just told that one of the beast's heads was wounded and that one of his heads came back to life. We're actually being told that the beast himself had the wound of the sword and that it is the beast who has come back to life. And we put this together and we're left to understand that this beast, this Antichrist, will be on the receiving end of an assassination. He will die, but then he will come back to life on the other side of dying. And as John says here in verse 3, his fatal wound was healed. Literally, his wound of death was therapeued healed. As you might imagine, the world goes crazy for the beast because of this resurrection, as it were, from the dead. At the end of verse 3, John says, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. Their amazement is over the fact that they know that the Antichrist has died and they see now that he has come back to life, which will end up looking like a miracle that rivals the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Satan is the great imitator, right? And that's what he's seeking to do here. Last Sunday, we celebrated Christ's resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of Christ from the dead is a precious truth that symbolizes Christ's uniqueness, even in the book of Revelation. In fact, write down Revelation 1.18, where Christ says, I am the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. In Revelation 2.8, Christ introduces himself as he who was dead and has come to life. Yet in this future day, Satan will, at least on some level, imitate this greatest of all miracles. He will imitate this miracle of resurrection and bring this Antichrist back from the dead. And God, in his providence, will allow this to happen as part of the strong delusion that God is allowing 
to come over the world to deceive all those who hate the truth. And this seeming miracle will have its intended effect. At the end of verse 3, John tells us that the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. John continues in verse 4 and says, They worship the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? In reality, the peoples of the earth are now worshiping the Antichrist, but in worshiping him, they're ultimately worshiping Satan, who gives the Antichrist his power. In their worship of the beast, they say, who is like the beast? Back in Revelation 12, we saw the angel Michael, whose name literally means, who is like God? Well, here, everyone is asking, who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war with him? And the expected answer to both of these questions is no one. In their minds, no one is like him. He is the goat, the greatest of all time. No one is like the beast. And no one is able to successfully go against him and win. How long will the Antichrist rule with this kind of dominion and adoration of the world well as long as God allows him to because God is in control even in this day this leads us to the third disclosure in John's vision of the rise of the Antichrist and his false prophet number three authority is given to the Antichrist to prevail over the world for 42 months authority is given to the Antichrist to prevail over the world for 42 months. Observe what John says beginning in verse 5. He says, A mouth was given to him, the beast, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. This man will have a mouth on him, the likes of which we can't even imagine And he will have an ego to match. He will have amazing skills in oratory. Yet the words he speaks will be arrogant words of blasphemy against the one true God. He will blaspheme God by speaking derogatory things about God. And he will also blaspheme God by his own arrogance, by the divine attributes that he, the Antichrist, will attribute to himself as he tries to present himself to the world as God, capital G. As the text says here, the beast will be given authority to act for 42 months. How long is 42 months? It's three and a half years. So we are talking here about the second half of the coming seven-year tribulation period in God's sovereign providence, this Antichrist will be allowed to rule and to flourish and prevail before his reign comes to an abrupt end at the second coming of Jesus to the earth. Speaking of his mouth, again, observe what John says in verse 6, and he opened his mouth, 
Speaking about the beast, he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. You say, his tabernacle, what's that? John says, I knew you would ask. That is those who dwell in heaven. That's what I mean when I speak of his tabernacle. So the Antichrist here in verse 6 is blaspheming God. He's blaspheming the name of God, and he's also blaspheming the people of God who now dwell in heaven. This means that the Antichrist will blaspheme Peter, James, and John, and the other apostles. He will blaspheme the saints of every age who are now in heaven, and he will blaspheme tribulation saints who have been martyred during the tribulation period. He will blame them for all of society's evils and tell the people of the world that the only solution to the world's problems is to root out from the earth every single believer in Jesus Christ because they are the problem. So not surprisingly, in verse 7, John says, it was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. The Antichrist will be the sworn enemy of Jesus Christ and the sworn enemy of all those who believe in Jesus. He will make war against them in this future day. And John tells us here that he will actually succeed in overcoming the saints of God. This doesn't mean that he's going to overcome them spiritually, but that he will overcome them physically, resulting in imprisonment and the slaughter of many believers in Jesus the world over. We all know that this very same spirit is already at work in the world, even in our own day. We see explosions of it in various places across the globe where Christians are persecuted and are killed for their faith in Christ. But as bad as those pockets of persecution are, the world has never seen anything like what will happen in this future day on such a global scale when the Antichrist is in charge. Not only will the Antichrist be given power to overcome the saints, but John says in verse 7, an authority was given to him over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Man, this guy's going to rule. He's going to rule everywhere. The Antichrist will have power over every nation and people group on earth. This authority will be given to him by the dragon, Satan, and God himself will allow this level of authority to be given to the Antichrist. The reign of this Antichrist will span the globe and reach every people group on earth. And his hold on the peoples of the earth will not just be a political hold, but it will be a spiritual hold as well. People won't just recognize the Antichrist as their political leader, but as their spiritual leader. Imagine those things coming together, and they will worship him as God. In verse 8, John says, All who live on the earth will worship him Everyone whose name has not been written since the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slaughtered. 
The Lamb's Book of Life contains the names of all those who are God's chosen ones, who were elected by God to salvation before the foundations of the earth were laid. All those whose names are in the Lamb's Book of Life will be graciously brought to faith in Christ by God. But in contrast to them whose names are in the Lamb's Book of Life, John, here in verse 8, tells us that everyone in this day whose name has not been written in the Lamb's Book of Life will worship the Antichrist. In other words, all the non-elect, all those who do not believe in Jesus, will worship the Antichrist. There won't be a thousand different religions. There will be those who believe in Jesus in this day, and there will be those who worship the Antichrist. Those are the two groups the world over. By the way, notice how John describes the lamb here. He describes him as the lamb who has been slain or who has been slaughtered. John is reminding us that Jesus Christ is the lamb who was slain as a sacrifice for the sins of the world and his death brings salvation to sinners whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The death of Jesus is a far better death than the death of the Antichrist and the resurrection of Jesus was an infinitely better resurrection than that of the Antichrist because Jesus' resurrection actually brings eternal salvation to everyone who believes in him. At this point, John pauses in verse 9 to give a word of wisdom to all who are living during this time. Maybe as you're listening to this, you're just thinking, man, what if I were alive during this day? What would I do? Which way would I go? John gives a word of wisdom to all those who are living in this future time when the world is divided between those who worship the beast and those who don't. And when the, the beast himself is making war against God's saints. In verse 9 and 10, John says, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. This passage is actually very broad in the range of meanings. And you would see this if you read all of the, even the English translations. But the upshot of this passage is that this time period in history will be a time when the fates and the destinies of men and women become manifest in an obvious way. And you will have no doubt in this day as to where everybody stands. When John speaks of those destined for captivity in verse 10, some interpreters take him to be speaking of those who are destined to be held captive by the Antichrist deceptions. All those who hate the truth are destined for captivity to the lies of the beast. And to this captivity, they will go, John perhaps is saying. Other interpreters take John to be speaking of those Christians who are destined 
to be taken into captivity of imprisonment by the Antichrist who will suffer at his hand. And this is a totally legitimate possibility. If this is John's meaning, then John is telling God's people to be ready to accept their suffering, to be ready to accept their imprisonment as God's plan during this time and not even try to resist that, but to be willing to suffer as Christ was willing to suffer. Some translate John as saying, he who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. I think the New King James translates it that way. And if this translation is correct, then John's point is to remind believers that those who persecute God's people in this day and imprison them, those persecutors will themselves one day be brought into captivity by God. The New American Standard Bible that we're reading from then has John saying, if anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed, serving as a warning to Christians not to take up the sword to defend themselves in this day, and also reminding them that those who kill them are sealing their own fates as well. The New International Version flips this translation and has it say, if anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. And that's a possible way to translate this. And if that's the meaning, it would indicate that if it is God's plan for one of his chosen ones to be martyred for their faith during this day, then that is what will happen. And God's chosen ones must be willing to embrace the fate of suffering and martyrdom that may come their way in this day. Whatever John's point is in these statements, in verse 9 and 10, he ends verse 10 by saying, here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. If saints hold fast to Christ in this day and believe in the truth of what John has just said, then they will be able to persevere in faith through their suffering and remain true to Jesus. And it will be the knowledge that God is in control of their fate that helps them to endure whatever befalls them. It will also be the certain knowledge that their persecutors and captors will be coming under God's judgment that will give these believers in Jesus the wherewithal to endure their own suffering without retaliation and being content to leave vengeance to God. With all of that said, when we see what the Antichrist will do during this future time, when we see how he will dominate the world and turn the world against the saints of God, we're left asking ourselves this question. How could it be that the whole world would follow after the beast in this way, even to the point of worshiping him? After all, no prior ruler has ever been able to accomplish such a feat on such a broad scale before. We know that the beast is fierce and strong with a power that comes from Satan, and that's a partial answer. 
We also know, we've learned, that the beast will die and experience a resurrection of sorts, and that explains things to a point. But there will be yet another reason that the Antichrist is able to win the affections and the worship of the world during this future day. And this leads us to the fourth disclosure in John's vision of the rise of the Antichrist and his false prophet. Number four, the false prophet arises who seduces the world to worship the Antichrist. The false prophet arises who seduces the world to worship the Antichrist. By the way, we are calling him the false prophet, even though John does not call him that in this chapter, because later in Revelation 19.20, John specifically calls this person the false prophet. It's Revelation 19.20, so we're going to call him that here in this chapter. Anyway, observe what John says in verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. You'll notice that this person is called a beast just like the Antichrist is, which means that he is as much of a savage creature as the Antichrist will be. You'll also notice that this beast is said to come up out of the earth, whereas the Antichrist is said to come out of the sea. At the very least, John's point is that both the Antichrist and now this false prophet come from what is earthly. This particular beast, John says, has two horns like a lamb. Well, isn't that convenient? Making him appear innocent and harmless in ways that on the surface actually mimic Christ. Yet John says, you know who he is as soon as he opens his mouth. He spoke as a dragon. In other words, the words that come out of his mouth are straight from Satan himself. Speaking of this false prophet, John continues in verse 12 and says, He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who live on it worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. This false prophet will no doubt be a man with great skills of oratory and ability to manipulate people's thinking and their emotions. But observe what John says about this man in verse 13. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of the sky to the earth in the presence of people. Wow. This false prophet is able to literally make fire come down out of the sky, which is akin to what Elijah, the prophet, in the Old Testament was able to do on a couple of occasions. And this false prophet is not some one-trick pony either. John says he performs great signs, plural. Not just signs, but great signs, and not just one sign, but signs, plural, meaning that he performs many other miraculous feats and calling down fire from heaven will simply be one of the amazing things that this false prophet is able to do. 
These will indeed be supernatural miracles consistent with Paul's promise in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, when he tells us that the man of lawlessness, who is the Antichrist, will come in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. These are genuine wonders and miracles, but they lead people astray and deceive. This is not all that the false prophet will do. This leads us to the fifth disclosure of John's vision of the rise of the Antichrist and his false prophet. Number five, this false prophet compels the world to worship an image of the Antichrist. We already know that he's leading the world to worship the Antichrist, but we learn in verse 14 and following that he leads the world in worshiping an image of the Antichrist. Observe what John says in verse 14. And he deceives those who live on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who live on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. Notice in verse 14 how John says that this man deceives people through the signs that he performs. And part of his deception entails influencing the people of earth to build an image to the beast in order to worship it. You say, well, what will that image look like? I don't have a clue. But it is an image that represents the Antichrist. And this false prophet will lead the world in the construction of this image. And evidently, everyone will do what he says and build this image. And then a most amazing thing will happen. In verse 15, John says, And it was given to him, the false prophet, to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause all who do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Back in Revelation 11, verse 11, we're told that after the two witnesses were killed, that, and I quote, the breath of God came into them and they stood on their feet, unquote. Well, here, the false prophet gives every indication of doing something just as remarkable by giving breath to the image of the beast such that it now appears to be alive and able to speak. This inanimate object has become animate. Some writers suggest that this is not going to be a real miraculous supernatural thing, but some kind of magic trick that the false prophet pulls off with some kind of technology and trickery. But John's language actually, I don't think, allows for that. As Robert Thomas in his commentary says, John's language here in no way implies sleight of hand, deceptiveness. John says, and it was given to him to give breath 
to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak. Those are John's words indicating that this is a supernatural feat wherein this false prophet actually is enabled to give breath to this image so that it appears to become an animate object and speaks. And God in his sovereignty will allow this to happen again as part of the strong delusion that is being sent to a world that hates the truth. And when this image speaks, it will speak chilling words of slaughter, calling upon all who do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Imagine what a moment this would be. People around the world contribute to the construction of this image that represents the Antichrist. They're happy in this achievement. The false prophet performs this miraculous deed of making this image come to life and actually speak. And what does it say? They listen to it speak. And in a soul-shuddering moment, the direction that this image will give to the world is that anyone who refuses to worship the image of the beast is to be killed. Thus declaring open season on all the saints of God around the world who follow Christ. What amazing days these are going to be to enforce compliance. This false prophet will also generate a most ingenious scheme. This leads us to the final disclosure in John's vision of the rise of the Antichrist and his false prophet. Number six, the false prophet causes everyone to be given the mark of the Antichrist. The false prophet causes everyone to be given the mark of the Antichrist. Observe what John says in verse 16. And he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, and the free and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads. There will be no exceptions to this requirement. Every person of every social class and every economic standing will be required to have this mark stamped or imprinted on their right hand or on their forehead. Back in John's day, slaves would be branded like this to show that they belong to their master. People in John's day would also be branded in this way to show their religious loyalties to some local deity. Here in verse 16, this mark will serve as a visible sign of people's enslavement and religious devotion to the Antichrist. Speaking of the false prophet and this particular mark, John continues and says in verse 17, And he, the false prophet, decrees that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Imagine living in a time when this is required of everybody and everyone around the world is happily complying, happy to receive this mark. 
And if you don't have the mark, you won't be able to buy anything. You won't be able to sell anything and receive income from the sale of any item. In other words, you won't be able to provide for yourself and for your family, which means that you and your family will die a death by slow starvation. What is the number that John is speaking about in verse 17? Well, you'll notice in verse 17 that John speaks of it as the number of his name, meaning the name of the beast. In other words, the number John is about to give us in verse 18 will somehow match the name of the Antichrist. John then tells us in verse 18, here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, a particular man, and his number is 666. John tells us in verse 18 what the exact number of the beast is, 666, but he still tells us that one will need wisdom and understanding and have to do some calculation to see the connection of this number to the name of the beast. In verse 18, he tells us that this number is that of a man. And in his closing statement of verse 18, John tells us that his number, speaking of the beast, his number is 666. Many of you know that the Greek and the Hebrew alphabets had numerical values for each letter of the alphabet. And John is telling us here that when you look at the name of whoever the Antichrist will be and you calculate the numerical value of the letters of his name that they will somehow in a compelling way equal 600 and 66. And so, inquiring minds want to know, our next question is, well, what is the name of the beast? And we want to get started now, figuring that out, right? We want to start looking at all the list of world leaders on the world stage today, and let's look at their name, and let's put it in Greek, or let's put it in Hebrew, and let's add up the numbers of their names and see if they might be the Antichrist. I'm not being facetious. People have done this for the last 2,000 years. In the first century, Christians took the words Nero, Caesar. They put those two words together and it equaled 666. When you add up the numerical value of each of the letters of those two words, Others have done this throughout church history with various Roman Catholic popes. Uh, During Martin Luther's day, there were people who believed Martin Luther was the Antichrist. In our own lifetime, I remember when I was a kid how people took Henry Kissinger's name and showed how it connects to the number 666 And so, last I heard, he's still alive. I've been suspicious of that guy ever since. 
Some thought uh, at one point that John F. Kennedy was the Antichrist, given the fact that he literally received 666 votes at the 1956 Democratic National Convention, and he also received a head wound. So there you go. Uh, when Ronald Reagan was alive, people noticed that his first and middle and last name all had six letters. Six, six, six. Maybe he's the Antichrist. Others have done the same kinds of calculations with the name Barack Obama and noticed that, I mean, they figured out some way to make it add up to six, six, six. I could give you a list of examples, they are endless. And they all represent, I think, an attempt to know who the Antichrist is before the actual fulfillment arrives. We should realize that this information that John gives us in this verse is for the benefit of those who will be alive during the fulfillment of these things. When they see a man arise on the world stage who is fulfilling the prophecies that God's word gives of the Antichrist and even prophecies like what we see here in Revelation 13, John is saying that one will be able to look at the name of that world leader at that time and see that the numerical value of the letters of his name will equal in some way 666. And the knowledge of this name will not just be designed to satisfy some idle curiosity. People in this future time will then know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is the Antichrist and it's time to flee to the wilderness and prepare themselves for the greatest time of suffering that the saints of God have ever known. And they'll also know, okay, this is the Antichrist and that they will be able to take heart and know that now that Mr. 666 has showed up, we're only three and a half years from the time when Mr. 777 arrives on the scene. And they can take encouragement from that. But what an awful time this will be at the end of the age, right? It will be an awful time in the future for believers in Jesus who will need extraordinary wisdom to keep themselves from being deceived, not just staying alive, but actually being deceived along with the world by the lies of the Antichrist and his false prophet. Jesus says, I believe it's in Matthew, that if these days were not cut short, even the elect would not have been saved. But this chapter reminds us of the need for wisdom in our own day as well. And I'll tell you, this is my big takeaway, and it's the one big takeaway I'm giving you guys today. This is why it's true that the only safe place for any of us to be is in Jesus. That's the only safe place. Think about it this way. Right now, there are people who believe in Christ, and there are those who don't believe in him. But among those who don't, there's atheists and there are Muslims and there are Hindus and, and there are others of a thousand different varieties of other faiths. 
But according to the Bible, all these other faiths are mere stepping stones to the one great false religion that the world will one day embrace in worship of the Antichrist. You may read a chapter like we have read and studied today and wonder who the Antichrist will be. And I wonder who he will be and wonder, would I be foolish enough to worship him and receive this mark? Well, the Apostle John, who wrote this chapter, I think, and I have it on good authority, he would tell you, don't look into the future to figure that out. Look at yourself in the mirror right now today and see if the spirit of the Antichrist is not already in you. I go back to the verse we began with in 1 John 2.18, where John says, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen, and from this we know that it is the last hour. You say, well, where are those Antichrists, and how will I recognize them? Well, John tells you in 1 John chapter 2, verse 22, he says, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. And then in 1 John 4, 3, John says, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. See, we're not waiting for the Antichrist to manifest himself. He's already manifesting himself. His spirit is at work in the world. And here's the deal. If you personally do not believe in God the Father and God the Son, if you refuse to confess that Jesus came from God, if you deny that Jesus is the Christ, that he is your Christ, that he is your Messiah and the Messiah of the world, then according to these passages I just read in 1 John, you are already a devoted follower of the religion of the Antichrist. And the spirit of the Antichrist already runs strong in you. And your present beliefs mean that if the events that John prophesies of in Revelation 13 were to happen right now, you would be duped and deceived by the beast and his false prophet. And you would be among the deluded masses who take the mark of the beast and worship him. And we're going to learn in the next chapter what's going to happen to those who do take the mark and worship the beast. I'll just read this to you very quickly in Revelation 14, 9, in the first part of verse 10. John says, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or upon his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God. That's the only thing awaiting those who worship the beast and receive his mark. The only safe haven for you and for me is for us to fly to Jesus Christ 
to embrace him as our Lord, as our Messiah and our Savior. If you believe in Jesus, you will thereby reveal that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life and you will be protected by God from the strong delusions that even our world today so easily falls prey to. If you do not believe in Jesus, you have no protection from these deceptions and no protection from the fate of judgment from God that will fall upon you. If you're here this morning and you have never believed in in Jesus Christ, I plead with you to believe in him today. It's only through him that you can have the forgiveness of your sins through his blood that was shed for sinners at the cross. It is only through Jesus that you can be made right with God. And it is only through Jesus that you will ever find protection from the lies of the world that would otherwise deceive you. Come to Christ. And Jesus says, anyone who comes to me, I will never cast them out. And make Jesus your Lord, your Messiah, and your tower of refuge from deception. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. It's hard, Lord, to read through this chapter, study its words, and not think of people that we know presently who do not know you, and our hearts hurt for them, and we long for them to come to a saving knowledge of you where they will freely confess you as the Messiah and believe in you as their Lord and Savior, and thus find salvation and deliverance from the deceptions of the Antichrist. We pray, Lord, that you would touch the hearts of those we are burdened for, and that you would, in your mercy and kindness, draw them to a saving knowledge of you, just as you have so kindly, undeservedly touched us and drawn us to you. Pray that you would help us as a congregation during these days where there are deceptions flying at us from every direction. And even as believers, it's so easy to be deceived. And we just ask that you would make us a people who cling to you, Lord Jesus, and a people who immerse ourselves in your word, that we are inoculated from the deceptions of this world But I pray that as we encounter various expressions of mayhem and see our world move ever closer to the kinds of events that we read about in this chapter, that we would remain not only vigilant, but also encouraged in knowing that we know how all this ends. But in the meantime, Lord, we need great wisdom. Here at Cornerstone, we need great wisdom in navigating the, the months and years ahead. Uh, we as elders here at Cornerstone need your wisdom as we take an honest look at our current situation and 
and asking you, Lord, how you want us to lead this precious congregation. We so want to get it right, and we're just asking for your help, and we're confessing to you our need of you. We pray for uh, churches around the globe that find themselves in various circumstances uh, that are most challenging uh, for them, and we pray that you would give them wisdom, Lord, in their situations, give them courage, give them boldness, give them wisdom, give leaders of churches around the world your wisdom, Lord. And help us as the church, the global church, to stay unified and to shine as a light for you. May all men know that we are truly disciples of you because we love one another. May the people of this community know that we are disciples of you, Lord Jesus, because we love one another. And may the light that goes forth from this congregation not only shed light upon the dark world around us, but even give warmth where warmth is needed. And we pray that through the testimony and the witness and the ministry of the people of this congregation, that souls would be saved, that the saints would be encouraged to persevere, and ultimately, Lord, that your name would be glorified. That's all we want. And anything you choose to do in us and through us, we will give you all the praise and all the glory. And we ask these things of you and express these things to you in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said,